in the previous talks we've discussed what it means to penetrate to the heart of Buddhism. We've been talking about the heart of Buddhism and that no matter what form of Buddhism we use or follow, that if we penetrate to the heart of that form of Buddhism, then we will reach the exact same heart of Buddhism. No matter what form we use, if we penetrate to its heart, then we will realize the heart of Buddhism. And this will be the realization that there's realization of the fact of not having a self or soul. The fact of not being a self or soul. This is, these facts are facts of life. It is life that lacks, that does not have and is not a self or soul. So for this reason, let's study this thing we call life. Now with this thing we call life, we can look at it in, as two different kinds of life. We can see the type of life that has egoism and the type of life that is lacking in egoism. Commonly, we live from day to day the sort of life that is tied up with egoism. But if we study and examine life carefully, we can, we are able to discover the type of life that is absent or that is lacking and free of egoism. Now when we endeavor to study life, it's very important that we study life within life itself. It's not really possible to study life from books, in schools, or at university. When we, when we study using books or schools or universities, the most we can accomplish is to study a method or some methodologies for studying life itself. So this is what we can get from books and universities. So we first we can study in this way and learn about some techniques that are useful in studying life. But then we have to take those techniques and use them in order to study life itself. Life, this thing we call life, we need to talk about this thing, life itself. What is it? What is life? Many of you think you already know what life is. Many of us think what we have a very good understanding of what life is. Most children even 
think that they know what life is. But this understanding is usually quite insufficient. It's a rather small and incomplete knowledge of what life is. For example, in children, they know what life is enough to be afraid of dying. That's as far as they understand life. They know it enough to be afraid of dying. But they don't have a sufficient knowledge where they can escape from all tukka and be free of all tukka. So for this reason, children as well as ourselves must study this thing called life on a much deeper and profound level than is commonly done. The typical understanding of life is not enough. It does not free us from sukha. So we must study this matter much more profoundly. And now we will discuss how to do that. You can con rather concisely, we can say that life is the thing that we take to be the ego. Whatever thing or things we take to be the ego, this is the meaning of life. This is what life is for us. But really there is only in this life the mind. There is mind, but there is no, no self, no soul, no ego, no, no nothing that we can truly call I or mind. And so what there is really happening is there is the mind and in the mind there are thoughts, a kind of thinking which attaches to certain things as ego. So this is what life is, this, this attaching to things, this taking things to be the ego. One of the difficulties about this, this matter is that in all living things it, there is a natural instinct which we could call the self-instinct. All, all living things have a kind of instinctual response where they, that I exist. This, this happens naturally. For example, as we mentioned yesterday, when the child accidentally bumps into a chair or carelessly bumps into a chair, and then the ego arises in the child and it kicks the chair in anger by that um, <clears throat> the process we talked about yesterday. And in this case, we see how the taking up, how this instinct, this natural instinct of a self, of identifying something as I and fighting for its survival, will condition the concept of an ego. And then we will attach to this. By attaching to an ego, then we end up find we we find ourselves with enemies as well as the child made an enemy 
out of a chair. And so by having an ego, we get enemies. So in this way, this, this attachment to something as an ego becomes the foundation for tukka, for unsatisfactoriness and our mental problems. But this is not necessary. It is possible for this, this life to be unencumbered by any thoughts of ego. Instead, there can just be life with mindfulness and wisdom. Through mindfulness and wisdom, the life will carry on correctly without giving rise to any concepts or feelings of self or ego. And so there is this possibility of life that is not encumbered with dukkha. It's probably not possible to remove this self-instinct or instinct of ego. As we mentioned in All Living Things, there naturally arises this, this knowledge or instinct regarding the self. And this is then used in order for survival of the organism. This is just a naturally arising kind of knowledge. We can't remove it or destroy it, but what we can do is develop this instinct. By developing it along the path of poti or enlightenment knowledge, this we can we can keep adding to and building up intuit, intuitive wisdom, which then is working together with this instinct and then guiding the instinct in the direction of enlightenment. And then this can continue this process of, of following the path of poti, can develop until there comes a time when there is an awareness, a, a level of sensitivity and awareness where there is no, no thought of self, no conception of self. So this, this instinct that arises naturally in all living organisms, which in Thai we call san chatayan, which means a, a knowledge that arises naturally, spontaneously, without having to be taught. This sanchatayan of self can be developed into what we can call pavitayan, which means a knowledge that has been developed through, through training and practice and experience. So we can't really get rid of this instinct but we can wisely develop it in the direction of enlightenment. The practice of vipassana, or the, <coughs> excuse me, the experience of vipassana, of direct intuitive insight, is a way of having the, the self-instinct, the sankatayan of ego, to meet up with reality. The the self-instinct through insight begins to discover reality. And then this 
realization and awareness of the way things really are has an influence on this instinct and then the instinct slowly transforms into what we call pavitayan or knowledge that has been fully developed properly developed another way of looking at this transformation of the the neutral self instinct which is just a mechanism for the organism organism survival into the fully developed knowledge we can also see this as the adding of of poti or enlightenment knowledge just to add more and more enlightenment knowledge into this neutral vessel of the of this instinct this instinct is neutral and by filling it up with enlightenment knowledge then it transforms into a knowledge of things as they really are so in this way the self instinct is transformed through the direct study of life until it sees it has the fully developed knowledge and wisdom of life as it really is this is what correct and proper vipassana accomplishes so we come to look at life in order to study it within itself most of us look at these bodies or these these things we call living beings and we see that they're not yet dead and so we assume that there is life somewhere but we really can't can't put our finger on what where the life is what is life most of us aren't able to pinpoint what we mean by life or what what life itself is if we approach this however from the the viewpoint of the buddhist teaching then we we see life is made up of essentially two factors two complementary inseparable factors one is called body and the other is mind so we can see life as these two things body and mind interrelated interconnected working together or in the pali language we call them nama and rupa nama is mind and rupa is body or if we wish to have a more detailed analysis of this thing we call life then we can take these two and split them up into five it's still one life but we can see it in a more detailed way and so we have five interrelated interconnected factors and these five things are called the five aggregates or the five khanda khanda can mean aggregate or group so we have the five aggregates of body there was body, there's we began with body and mind the first aggregate is body but then mind we break up into four aggregates and so there is the aggregate of feeling 
the aggregate of discrimination, the aggregate of thinking, in the aggregate of sensory consciousness or sensory awareness. So we have these four mental aggregates and the one body aggregate which makes the five khanda. This is a somewhat more detailed analysis of what life is. But then if we start to ask, well, where do these five khandas come from? How do they arise? Then we will see that these five khandas, these aggregates, arise from sense contact. When the eye sees a shape, or the ear hears a sound, or the nose smells an odor, the tongue tastes a taste, the body feels a touch, or the mind thinks a thought. These are the six sense spheres. And there are these sensory contacts between sense organ and sense object. And so through these sense experiences, through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind, we have the, the nutriment or the food which gives rise to the five khandas. And so if we want to study life on a profound level, we can see life as these six different kinds of sense experience which make up our, our life. So when we study life, we can study life in a twofold aspect, as body and mind. Or we can study life in a fivefold way, as the five aggregates. Or we can see the six, six avenues of sense experience, of sensory contact, which are the, the basis for the arising of these five aggregates. This is a way, this is how we can begin to examine these things in order to see what life really is. Now all these, all these things that make up life we can see as being nothing but natural elements. In the Pali language we have the word datu. Datu means something that when we break, break something up into its smallest pieces, that smallest possible thing is called a datu. And usually we use the word element in English, though in our modern chemistry and physics we, we have broken up the elements into smaller and smaller pieces. But when we say the element, we mean something which cannot really be broken up any further. And so we can see that life is made up of nothing but elements. Instead of attaching to life as ego, as making this, this identification with it as I or mine, if we examine it carefully, we will realize that there are nothing but natural elements. There's the body, which is made up of elements, this natural element. And then there is mind, which we call, has a special name, the consciousness element, vijnana, datu, 
the consciousness element. And this consciousness element is that element which is able to think, feel, be aware, have sensitivity, be conscious. This is the consciousness element. And when the conscious element thinks or whatever, then there are thoughts and emotions and feelings. And these thoughts and emotions and etc. are also elements of nature. There's no self there. It's not an ego that is thinking. And the thoughts are not I or mine. They're just elements of nature. And so if we see mind as, or life as nama and rupa, these are nothing but natural elements. Or if we see life as the five aggregates, well, these are also nothing but natural elements. In them is nothing that we could call I or mind, nothing that is really an ego. Or the six sense avenues, the six sense spheres via the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. These are also, and all the experiences we have through these sense doors, these are nothing but elements of nature. In them, you can really not find anything whatsoever that can be properly called an ego. But it's the, the tendency of the mind to, to react to sensory experience in an egoistic way, to condition or concoct the idea of an I who experiences and my experiences. And so by taking these different natural elements of life and attaching to them, then we, be, we make life into the ego. We just take these bits of life and make them into an ego. But if this is truly studied in a profound way, then there will be a realization that there's really no ego involved. There's just nothing but natural elements. When we were little kids, back in the days before quartz watches, if we were in an, a curious mood and unscrewed the back of a watch, we would see the inside workings and mechanisms of the watch or of a clock. And we would notice a mainspring or something in the different gears within that watch going click, clack, click, clack, click, clack. And most little kids would think that the watch was alive because there's this movement. But then as the child, or once we grow up, and if we were to look at the same watch, we would realize, oh, there's, there's no real life there. Or especially if we were a, a watch repairman, then we would absolutely know that there was no life in this watch. The, the young child was in a state of avicha. Avicha means not knowing. It's a state of ignorance, of lacking knowledge, of the absence of correct knowledge. 
but the adult has wicca, which is correct knowledge about the situation or thing. And so through this wicca being developed, then avicca is gotten rid of, and then there is a correct understanding of the watch. Or take some savage in the jungle who sees an automobile for the first time. That, that man from the jungle would probably think that the car was alive, like a buffalo or a cow or horse. But then through further experience dealing with automobiles, maybe even being taught how to be an automobile mechanic, this man or this former savage from the jungle would then realize that no, the automobile isn't a living thing. It's not of the nature of a buffalo or horse. So through the development of vicha, correct knowledge, the, the state of not knowing, the condition of being ignorant as to the true nature of things is gotten rid of. So this difference between avicca, not knowing, and vicca, knowing correctly, this is the important difference that for which we practice vipassana, for which we work at giving rise to direct intuitive insight. Through vipassana as an experience, there arises and is developed this vicha, correct understanding of life. And these, the condition, the previous condition, which most of us are still caught up in, of being ignorant about life, of not really knowing about life and the way it works, this state of ignorance is transcended to a state of, of knowing, of knowing correctly, of having wise knowledge of what life really is. So this, this difference between avicca, not knowing, or knowing wrongly, and vicca, correct knowledge, is a key to understanding what vipassana is. Now, we, meaning those of us who do not understand Dhamma properly, we, when we look at body and mind, we see it in the same way that the child saw the watch. Or when we look at the five aggregates of body, feeling, discrimination, thinking, and sensory consciousness, we look at these in the same way that the child looks at the watch. Or when we look at the six sense spheres, those of us who do not understand Tama properly and fully, look at these in the same way that the child looks at a watch. This is because spiritually we are still little kids. We're still children. 
And so we're taking the way the child took the watch and turned it into a living thing. We, we attach to body and mind or the five khandhas or the sense spheres as a living thing, as a living entity, as an ego with a soul. This is because of our spiritual immaturity that we make these egoistic identifications towards life. <clears throat> now, let me warn you to be careful when listening. Be aware of the limitations of language. And we have to use words like we, because this is the way language is. But please don't misunderstand this word we to represent some, some ego or some soul. All it means is the mind. We is just mind. Minds. And so please don't misunderstand it. When the mind, when mind understands life properly, then it receives the benefit of a life that is free of tukka, a life that is calm and free of conflict. When life is seen improperly because there has not been any vipassana, then life will be attached to as a life, as a living thing, a separate life. And then this will have the inevitable result of tukka. There's a choice. Is life seen as just life, just natural elements, or is it seen as a living thing, a living entity, the way a child sees a watch as a living thing? Now let's look at the word education or study. When we're children, we still don't know how to read. So we must study books. We must study letters, the alphabet, in books until after an adequate amount of education, we know how to read books. We are conversant with, with books. On the spiritual level, it works the same way. At first, we really don't know life. We don't understand it at all. And so we study. We keep studying and studying life until we develop an understanding of life, until we know the things we need to know about life, until we study the aspects of life which are essential. And then through repeated study, the adequate knowledge of these necessary things is developed. So we will consider the process of education a bit further. This word education or study is an English translation of the Thai word suksa. Suksa is derived from the Sanskrit word sicha or the Pali word sika. Now suksa has meanings which most people are familiar with in an ordinary way. 
when we talk about education, most people are talking about books and schools and these kind of things. And so we wonder if this common understanding of education is really appropriate when we come to talking about spiritual matters. We, we're, we're afraid that if we use the same word, people will misunderstand what needs to be done in the spiritual arena. The difference between the common understanding of education or study and the, the study that must happen spiritually has some differences. Maybe if we look at the word sika, the Pali word a bit, this will help. Sika is made up of two, two parts. The first is sa, and the second is ika. Sa means oneself, and ika means to see, to look and see. So sa, ika, or sika, means to to look and see within oneself, to look and see by oneself, to look and see for oneself. This is sika. Now if you understand sika or education and study in this way, you may see it as somewhat different than the, the common kind of education that goes on in our schools where some authority passes on information and we accept it. That is not sika, looking and seeing by oneself, looking and seeing in oneself. But for spiritual education, it is absolutely necessary that there is this looking and seeing within oneself, by oneself. This this information or this education cannot be done to you by any outside authority. It must happen internally. And so to differentiate, maybe we will use the term education for the common type of study and then spiritual education or spiritual study for the this true Sika or Suksa of looking and seeing within oneself, by oneself. Now when we approach this word Suksa or education, the kind of education that is common or dominant in the world these days is an education which deals only with externals. The focus is completely on things outside of oneself. We're always looking around and outside. This is the, the emphasis and direction of modern education. But the education we're talking about is an education of looking within. Life is within. The ego arises within. All the thoughts and thinking and dukkha, all this happens within. So we need to, to adjust and redirect our orientation 
away from external things and focus and direct our study within. We need to correct this misdirection and start looking within. Within this, this, this point of seeing within oneself, looking within oneself, of seeing for oneself, by oneself, this is absolutely crucial. Without this, there is no spiritual practice at all. The Buddha used the word santitiko, which means to see by oneself, to see for oneself, and to experience the benefit of something within oneself. Truth, ultimate truth is santitiko. No one else can tell it to you or give it to you. You can't find it in books or in somebody else's words. Santitiko, the truth, must be found within by looking within and experiencing it within. All of you have something which you take to be your ego. All of you have something which you think is an ego. And so in this study, we need to study that ego. Look at it, watch it, observe it until you see it. Look at the ego until you see the truth of the ego. This is what we mean by spiritual study. There are many books available about things in the world. And when it, books written about physical things are, are quite simple, it's quite an easy matter to write down in a book facts and details about physical things, about external things. But when it comes to these mental things, questions of the ego, this is something which can't be written down in a book. The experience of the truth of these things cannot be written down. It cannot be expressed in words. All we can do with words in books is record the techniques and methods for seeing, for studying, for looking at the ego. Books and things like that are great for external things. But what we but our problem is internal. And so to work with this internal thing, we can't rely on books or the teachings of someone else. We have to look and see for ourselves. And so the study we're, we're talking about here is a study where we, we look at the problem itself. We have this problem, and so we study that until we see it ourselves. And that can only be done internally, within ourselves. When it comes to study, we can talk about two types of study. One is study that begins with the effect or result and works back to the cause. I believe this is called induction. And then there is also the kind of study that begins with causes 
and works through to the results. And this is probably called deduction. What this means is that we start with the result, which is dukkha. There is greed, anger, stupidity, love, hatred, fear, worry, jealousy, possessiveness, sentimentality, longing. All these kind of things are dukkha. And so we study what causes all this dukkha. What is the root, the source of dukkha? And so we look within and we find the ego. We find attachment to things as I or mine. This clinging and clutching to things as I, as me, as myself, as the ego. This is the cause of all this tukkha or egoism. This tendency of egoism is the cause of the tukkha. So we can begin with the external result and work back in <clears throat> towards the cause. Or we can, and then we can take work from the cause, the egoism, this ignorant, this foolish attachment to things as I and mine, and follow through to the result, which is tukkha, which is the agitation and disturbance of the mind, this, this confusing, this burning, this disturbance of the mind of life. So we can study it from externally into the ego or from the internal ego out towards the result which is tukkha we can follow either way for for our study to be complete for vipassana to be complete we must see both the cause and the effect most people just lump them together and don't notice this relationship of cause and effect and so in that kind of thing is not any is not a correct understanding for proper and correct vipassana we must see the result and its cause we must see the cause and its result this is necessary in vipassana before <clears throat> before he was the buddha the Buddha was just an ordinary sentient being like the rest of us. So he was just like us. And he hadn't really learned how to study within. Before the enlightenment experience, the Buddha had not really learned how to do this internal spiritual study. He had had an experience as a prince at the age of 29 where he saw Tuka or Dukkha. He had an experience of this and saw that there was dukkha. But this was an experience of what is external. And so he began to search for the cause of dukkha. To do so, he left home, he left his family, and started searching for the cause of dukkha. Six years later, he sat down under a tree and started to really work within. There was dukkha. And then so he asked, where does dukkha come from? And he saw that dukkha comes from chati, birth. 
Dukkha comes from birth. But don't be careful with this word birth. We're not talking about physical birth of a body, the birth from out of a mother's womb. We're talking about spiritual or mental birth, the arising of the ego, the birth of the ego in the ignorant mind. So the Buddha saw that dukkha comes from this, this birth of the ego. Well, where does that birth come from? The Buddha saw that the birth comes from which we can translate as existence. Existence of the ego. Because the ego exists, it is born. Well, then where does existence come from? And then the Buddha discovered that existence comes from upadana, attachment, clinging and grasping to things as I and mine. And where does this attachment come from? The Buddha saw that it comes from dhanha, craving or ignorant desire. And where does craving come from? It comes from feeling. The pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant nor pleasant feelings. And where do these come from? They come from patsa, sense contact, through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. And where does patsa come from? Patsa comes from the sense spheres, having these six sense spheres, the visual, oral, olfactory, gustatory, tactile, and mental sense spheres. And where do these sense spheres arise from? They come from mind and body. Because there is mind and body, there arises the sense spheres. And where does mind and body come from? Mind and body comes from consciousness, the basic awareness of, of life. This basic consciousness is what causes mind and body. And where does consciousness come from? The Buddha saw that consciousness is concocted. It is a process of conditioning, of concocting, of the putting together of different things and getting consciousness. This is called sankhara, which is often translated compounding, but I prefer the word concocting. And where does this concocting come from? It comes from avicca. It comes from ignorance. Because there is ignorance, there is this process of the mind concocting things, <clears throat> mixing things together, and coming up with this big long chain. So the Buddha studied from the dukkha and he followed it inward to the starting point with it, which is not knowing things as they really are. The Buddha started from outside and came all the way inside and then he reviewed it from inside back out. And then he for days and nights just kept studying this from dukkha to ignorance, from ignorance back to dukkha, back and forth, studying each, each of these link, linkages to fully understand this process of the arising of dukkha, both deductively or inductively and deductively. 
The Buddha took a long, long time to discover this. It took a lot of spiritual research and investigation. But we're most fortunate. I hope you're beginning to realize how fortunate you are that you don't have to go through this on your own the way the Buddha did. The Buddha didn't have anyone to teach him how to do this, this kind of spiritual investigation, this how to think this through, investigate it through completely. He had no teacher, he had to discover it and uncover it on his own. But because this knowledge has been passed down to us, we now are told of the technique. We now have some knowledge about how to, how to go in, how to successively follow the, the causes of dukkha all the way into the original cause, which is ignorance. And so we're most fortunate that we have this method being maintained and passed on to us. And so we can use this method now that the Buddha discovered to follow all the way back into the original source, which is ignorance, and then follow it back out from the cause to the effect, which is dukkha. And we can study this. And so until we fully understand this, this process of concocting, of giving rise to dukkha, and then we will understand life. Obviously, this kind of study which we've been talking about cannot be learned from books. No book is going to teach you this kind of thing which the Buddha discovered. But nonetheless, we, we say that it is scientific. But it's not the usual kind of physical science that deals with hypotheses. This spiritual science doesn't have to use hypotheses or theories. We just use this technique, which has been described, to, to study realities. There are these succession of realities linked up in the way we, we mentioned, and so we can follow them back to the original cause of all dukkha, of unsatisfaction, pain, suffering, frustration, grief, and all these things. So this is a very scientific method and it must be done internally. For this to happen, for this vipassana, this looking and seeing of vipassana which we have described, for that to happen the mind must be made ready. And this preparing of the mind for vipassana is called samati or concentration. The mind is cleared and calmed, it's made firm stable and alert. The mind is trained and prepared so that it becomes a very powerful tool that is able to look and see. When the mind is clouded or disturbed or egoistic or wandering or dull, there is no possibility for any vipassana, no clear seeing or direct insight will arise. So there must be the training and preparing of the mind, which we call samati. And this samati and vipassana both stand upon a foundation of sila. Sila is living our life in a balanced way, 
where we aren't living selfishly, where we're not, we're not merely following our desires, living according to our own pleasures and prejudices, likes and dislikes. Sila or morality is living in a balanced, simple way where there is no, we're not trying to make conflicts, we're not getting into competitions with other beings. When there is sila, when there is true sila, a, a level of living, of speaking, of earning one's living, of maintaining life, that is calm and simple and not selfish, then it is easy to develop samati. But if one, if there is no sila, it is, it is hopeless for any deep level of samadhi to develop. And if there is no samadhi, if the mind is not clear and stable, then vipassana will not arise. So we invite you and encourage you to live in a simple, balanced way. Develop morality so that this can be a foundation for a, a clear, calm, steady mind. And then that mind can do the spiritual study of Vipassana and realize and penetrate to the heart of Buddhism, to the, the ultimate truth of life. So on this, this point we will end today's talk. Before you go, I would like to make a short announcement. This afternoon there will be a special Vipassana session um, involving the burning of a corpse or a funeral. Everyone is invited. Please carry on with the... We don't know exactly when this will happen, just sometime early in the afternoon. And so please carry on with the afternoon's activities. And then when it is time for you to come over to the funeral pyre, I'll come over to the Boy Scout field and ring the bell. And then please bring your cushions or bring your, just bring your sacks. Please don't bring your cushions, but bring your sacks so you have something to sit on. And then come over to the, the funeral area and then there will be two short talks, very, very short, and then the burning of the corpse. This kind of ceremony is not being staged as anything other than an opportunity for vipassana. This is an opportunity to learn. It can be a very meaningful learning experience. So please, before coming over to the funeral pyre, practice mindfulness. Keep your mind clear and steady by walking or sitting, whatever technique you will be using. And then as you walk over to the funeral area, please maintain mindfulness. Please don't allow your mind to wander or become distracted. And then if you, if you attend this ceremony mindfully, with a clear, steady mind, then it is an excellent opportunity for some genuine vipassana to arise, to, for some 
clear intuitive seeing into the nature of reality. So we'll see you this afternoon. Thank you.